Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 224, and today's guest is Lisa Carmen Wang. From this podcast, I get to interview lots of highly accomplished entrepreneurs. However, it's not every day that you get to interview a successful entrepreneur, investor, head of brand at a fast-growing startup, a Forbes 30 under 30 recipient, author, and oh, a four-time U.S. national champion for gymnastics and a Hall of Fame gymnast. Needless to say, we cover a lot of ground, and it's an inspirational interview on so many levels. In addition to her many accomplishments, a lot of Lisa's personal brand and platform is centered around empowering women, which is helping to create the next generation of female leaders. I know my two teenage daughters will be listening to this episode because I want them to know that the world is their oyster, and if you put in the hard work, anything is possible. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Lisa's background growing up, plus all the details on the level of dedication that was required to be a world-class gymnast and what that experience was like, how she got involved into the world of entrepreneurship, her experience building SheWorks, a leading community platform for female entrepreneurs, which was acquired by Republic, where she is currently the head of brand and communications, three pieces of advice for being a confident investor, an overview of her first book, The Bad Bitch Business Bible, which is scheduled for release next year, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. We just redesigned our job board on VentureFizz, and we now have over 7,000 positions posted. The new design is much cleaner. It includes lots of powerful search and filtering options to help you find that ideal position in almost any major city, or if you are looking for a remote position, that is the fastest growing segment of jobs on our site. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Lisa. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Excited to be here. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about, Lisa. So you've done so much, which we're going to talk about. And you know, this is one of the reasons why I love what I do, especially with the podcast, is I have the opportunity to talk to just amazing people that have accomplished so much throughout their career. Um, so when I when I received the pitch from your amazing PR firm, it was like, uh, we have an opportunity for you to speak to a four-time USA national champion, Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur, angel investor, keynote speech coach. And I was just like floored. I'm like, wait, this is an amazing opportunity to talk to somebody that has accomplished so much um, that crosses over my world into other worlds of, you know, we're coming up to the Olympics here. Uh, so there's so much going on. Um, but I'm, I'm a, a father of two teenage girls, uh, 17 and 15 years old. And one of the things that I see throughout your own um, initiatives that you have, whether it's the podcast or your upcoming book, is building you know, strong women, right? So what, what advice would you want to share with two teenage girls about building a path as a next generation woman leader? The number one thing that took me way too long to realize is that you have the power to own your story you can choose to be the heroine of your own narrative. And I think too often, and this is not entirely our fault, it's the way our culture and society has trained women to be, is to be reactive and to be side characters to someone else's story. Um, We haven't been necessarily empowered with those narratives that say, you can be 
you can be different. You don't have to follow a traditional path. You don't need to be put in a box or subscribe to certain labels, um, whether that's in your relationships, in your career, in the path that you choose for you. Um, it's, it's easy to conform, right? It's easy to just let other people um, tell you what to do and to wait for permission. And I say that uh, a woman steps into her full power, not when she's finally given permission to do so, but when she realizes she never needed it in the first place. And um, in my upcoming book, The Bad Bitch Business Bible, I talk about breaking free of good girl brainwashing, which is girls being taught to be good, follow the rules, please people, don't speak up, don't cause too much trouble, don't be too assertive. Um, and that's what gets us straight A's. That's what allows us to be good students. It gets us into good schools. It gets us into nice jobs. But the moment you enter your career, the moment you enter the business world, which is largely a man's game, no matter what industry you're in, you realize that no one ever taught you the skills that really mattered, which were the confidence to stand up for yourself, the ability to advocate for what you're worth, to not allow people to step on your boundaries, to say, here's how I'm spending my time. This is what my goals are. And either you lead, you follow, or you get the fuck out of my way. And I think that that confidence, that enoughness in me took a long time to really, um, to manifest because even as a gymnast, um, I was taught to follow the rules, fit a certain weight, you know, follow strict schedule, listen to my coaches and authority. Um, and as an athlete, I learned how to perform with my body and I never really truly learned how to own my voice and use that as a tool for advancing my life. And, and exactly why I wanted to ask you that question. Cause that's just, like my daughters will be listening to this podcast because that is just great advice. And it's, those are the values that I'm trying to instill to them to be confident, to speak up. And, you know, uh, gender shouldn't matter. It should just be like, I am here to do my job incredibly well and outperform all others, regardless of uh, gender. So, um, well, let's rewind the clock. So talk about your background. You gave a little, you know, I talked about some of your accomplishments. You just kind of talked a little bit too, but like, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? And, and how did, how did you get into the whole world of, you know, uh, competing in, in gymnastics? Sure. So I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and no one in New York would ever think that that would be the place that I grew up in. I, I call myself a, I'm a diehard New York girl at this point. And I grew up in Madison because my parents immigrated from China. They grew up during the cultural revolution. Um, and yeah, it was very difficult to, to come over to the U.S. trying to build the American dream. So we didn't have much at all um, growing up. But the thing is, my dad was a Ph.D. in nuclear physics very, very smart guy. That's how he made it over here. And at some point he realized, you know, in America, they don't pay scientists, they pay the bankers, they pay the guys in finance. And so he took that numbers knowledge and tried to figure out how he could assimilate into the American culture. He didn't have any English when he came. And so um, I think I saw how hard my dad worked and maybe the, a part of that is within me just naturally, but um, I've, I've always been very uh, focused. I think I've always had this innate feeling that I was meant to do something more. And if I really think back to 
some of the chips on my shoulder because I think everyone chip on their shoulder. I grew up in a very white uh, Wisconsin, you know, town and we were the only Asians. And I remember, and this is just a quick anecdote, the very first birthday party I was invited to in uh, kindergarten or preschool. And it was a, a little boy's birthday party. And my mom and I went shopping for a, a gift, which was a big deal for us because we were spending that money on a gift. And um, when it came time to open the presents, uh, when he opened mine, he said, thank you. And I said, you welcome instead of you're welcome. And everyone started laughing around the, like all these kids. And I was like, what did, what did I do wrong? And I realized it was, I was imitating my parents' accent. And so the shame that I felt back then was probably what committed me to saying, I'm going to get really good at this language. I'm going to be a great communicator. I'm going to learn English. I'm not going to speak Mandarin anymore. And that was, you know, pre pre seven, probably like five years old or something. Um, and you know, lo and behold, then I became a literature major at Yale. <laughs> so it's, that, that has continued on. And now I'm the head of communications and brand at Republic. Right. Um, so it started early, but, uh, yeah, so that was kind of my early experience as call it a, a human being trying to develop. Um, but I went to gymnastics when I was nine years old and, um, also probably one of my first acts of um, standing up for what I thought was injustice back at that time. So how I got involved was in third grade, we had something called Fine Arts Day and we only took arts and arts classes and creative classes that day. And I was torn between two classes, the gymnastics class and the Beanie Baby making class at a time when Beanie Babies were skyrocketing in value. And you know, McDonald's was jumping on board with the tiny Beanie Babies. Um, and I couldn't decide, but what I did realize was that my last name started with the W, which was at the end of the alphabet. And the people at the end of the alphabet always go last in choosing anything. And I really wanted these classes. And I went up to the teacher that day um, and said, hey, I think it's not fair that the second half of the alphabet always has to go after the first half of the alphabet. Is there any way we could change it this time? And, um, you know, being a good teacher, she actually allowed that. She's like, OK, we'll put it up for a vote. You can try and figure out how to get the second half of the alphabet together. And so I remember standing on like a little desk and being like, hey, guys, you know, I think it's just not fair that we always have to go after the first half of the alphabet. And then we we won by one vote. And then I did eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I got the gymnastics class. And then the rest is history. And that was the next 10 years of my life. And I became a champion gymnast. That's an amazing story. I love that. Like, because so, my last name is Klein with a C. So I was always in the first half. So, <laughs> you know, ABC. So it was pretty, uh, I always had premium choice, I guess. Now, so talk about the rigors of competing at this level. I mean, a four-time national, U.S. national champion. Uh, talk about the work you had to put in to get to that level. And you're, you're in the hall of fame now for gymnastics. I mean, that's an incredible accomplishment. So what was that like? It was my entire life. I mean, I spent uh, at my peak, I was doing about six hours, seven hours a day of training while also attending public high school. Um, so there were two things that I focused on. It was becoming the best gymnast I could be and then making sure I was 
the best student I could be. So those were the only two things I focused on with gymnastics outweighing school even. Um, but it would be like my schedule in high school was wake up, schedule all of my five classes in a row. And then I'd leave right before lunch. And um, so we had like, we had 4,000 kids in my high school. So there were multiple lunch periods. And so I had, I skipped out the last lunch period and um, ate in the car and um, did my homework in the car, started training, did five, six hours of training. And my mom picked me up sometime around 10, 10 30 PM. I would do homework in the car, eat some snacks, and then just keep doing homework and then go to bed, do it all over again. Yeah. And so there's really no room for anything else. Um, and like any teenager, I wanted to be included in a popular crowd. You know, I was really shy and I think gymnastics also gave me an outlet because I was really good at it. And what I've always heard, and I've, people have always said this about me my entire life is like, oh, Lisa's such a hard worker. My teacher said that, my parents said that, my coaches said that. And I think because I knew how to work hard, um, authority really liked me <laughs> just generally. They're like, oh, she's such a, such a hard working student and gymnast. And, um, and so that was what I prided myself on. And I think what I learned was that truly hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And I was by no means the most talented gymnast. Um, and I remember feeling insecure at points where I would see these girls who were better than me, they were lazier. And so I was like, okay, if they figured out the trick was actually just working really hard, like I'd have no chance, um, but I just outworked them. And I had a dream, you know, I had a decade long dream to go to the Olympics. And I was like, I'm gonna do everything I can to make that happen. And when you compete at that level, the, the competition is incredible, you know, so entrepreneurship is really hard. There's a lot of, you know, emotions that go into being a, an entrepreneur. So what was it like, you know, you know, preparing for that competition where, you know, those few moments could make or break all that hard work you put in? It's nerve wracking. No matter how many millions of hours you put in, it is like your dream hinges upon a moment. And all you can do is hope that the muscle memory kicks in, that your nerves stay steady, that you can find a way to get in the zone. But obviously the bigger the competition, the harder that gets. Um, and that's why we do the same routines over and over and over again at practice. And you're like, how do you get sick of it? Right? Like, how do you not get sick of it? Um, not, like nothing really changes day in, day out at practice. You just keep trying to hone very, very specific skills. And um, yeah, I mean, there's multiple times where it's just, you feel like you're going to puke before you go out on the mat, you hear them call your name, you hear them say, you know, representing the United States of America, and you feel the weight of the country, um, the weight of everyone else who worked to help you get there on your shoulders. Um, and you're doing that as a, you know, 16, 17 year old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so you're forced to grow up, you're forced to mature in a way where you realize like, you know, things aren't going to get handed to you. Um, and I, I think it's, it's the sort of pressure cooker that, um, forces you to have discipline 
that very few other things do when you're a young age, because there's just, you know, there's, there's so many people around you who, who are depending on you succeeding or have their egos tied to you succeeding. You did, you know, after a very successful career, you did decide to finally retire. I'm sure that was a very hard decision. So what got you to that point? And then, you know, as you highlighted before, you're, you know, studied at Yale. Yeah. Um, the shelf life of a gymnast is quite short, you know, at 19 you're old. So, <laughs> um, I, I got to a point where I had achieved almost everything that I had wanted to do. Um, and I think I started having that desire for, uh, after spending a decade, like what else is there? What else am I capable of? And, um, you know, the decision after getting to Yale was quite easy because I've always been focused on my studies. So I knew that there was this other side of me, this intellectual, um, side of me that I hadn't yet explored and hadn't figured out what those passions are. And so, um, it was definitely very difficult to transition out of gymnastics. And a lot of athletes don't talk about this, like loss of identity and like death of previous self. Um, and when you suddenly don't have that and suddenly you have, nine hours of your day back, you can eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter if you wake up tired or hungover or anything, like no one's going to yell at you. Um, your body suddenly belongs to you again. And I, I didn't realize like I, my body didn't belong to me for the, the entire decade. It belonged to the people who were judging that and giving it a score. And so to even learn how to be in touch with who I am, what I want, what my body's saying to me, for my own sake of living and not for a performance was a really interesting transition. Um, but I think, again, the advantage I had was like, I had experienced passion before, like a really, really deep passion that I wanted to commit myself to. And I know that that's something that people go a lifetime without figuring out, like, what am I supposed to do? What is my purpose? What should I focus on? And, um, so I knew that feeling and I searched for that feeling again, throughout college, post-graduation. Like I didn't find it until later. Um, but that's why I tried seven different majors. I tried all these extracurricular activities. Um, you know, I bounced around, I did the whole thing. Like there was definitely that crisis, but I think what I've always been really good at is having faith and knowing that if I keep committing to myself, if I keep trying and I keep iterating, like something's going to work out. And I, I will find what I'm looking for. So how did you identify the world of entrepreneurship? The world of entrepreneurship came to me after I figured out that I was not meant for the corporate world and the corporate world of finance in particular. So I started at a hedge fund in New York after college and um, yeah, very quickly realized that the thing that I did not have was creative freedom or the ability to make impact in a way that I wanted to make impact. And I think the two words freedom and impact are really important to me um, when I think about how I want to live my life, whether that's uh, working or just life. I mean, I work life integration is kind of how I see um, what I do now, but I took the leap into entrepreneurship for the simple reason that I was not happy um, and I didn't have that creative freedom or impact in a, in a corporate world. And I remember, uh, my parents were like any immigrant parents, very, very upset and surprised that I was jumping into a very risky world. My dad, uh, I remember was on the phone yelling at me. My mom was crying. They're like, what are you doing? You're throwing your life away. 
And all I could say is like, but I'm not happy. Like I have no other reason besides I'm not happy. And I kind of look back and it's like kudos to me because to give enough weight to that feeling where it's just like, I have no other legitimate reason besides I'm not happy. And so many people brush that away, right? They're like, oh, but it's, but everything else is great. So I should be satisfied. I should be happy. I should be grateful. And it's like, no, how you feel matters like a lot. Um, and so that, that, you know, I took the leap into entrepreneurship, didn't know what I was doing, didn't have any connections in the tech scene, the venture scene. Um, again, I think it goes back to this faith of like, I know I'm a quick learner. I know I'll figure it out. I know, like, I know I'll find it, but I know I'm not going to find it if I just stay here and like wish that something's going to change. And you, you found ways to get you into the world. Like I saw startup Institute, which is a program that I'm very familiar with. And it just was like, wow, uh, that is a very impactful program for so many people just to make that transition from being a lawyer, investment banker, or whatever career path they were unhappy doing to something better that they were more excited yeah. about. So so then you started a company then, right? So, so was it Foos? Yeah, it was yeah. Foos. One tap late night munchies in the middle of the on-demand wave. <laughs> right. So this was like a munchies DoorDash. Yeah, pretty much. It came to you in 20 minutes, made sure that you, it got there before you fell asleep um, and <laughs> gave you limited choices so you didn't have decision fatigue if you're, you know coming back from a late night. Right. <laughs> um, there's even a healthy option that you could program in there to, to help you make the right decision if you wanted to. Um, and yeah, I think that was, I pitched it at my first startup hackathon and ended up winning. And I realized like, wow, like if there's a panel of VCs who think that this is a great idea, like maybe I should try it. Um, I made all the mistakes there. You know, I brought in a co-founder who, was like a design intern because I was like, oh, like undervalued my skills. And because I wanted to apply to an accelerator and they said, it's better if you have co-founders. So I chose the first person I found. I was like, make you a co-founder. Like, let's give you a bunch of equity. Why not? Um, hired my CTO from Craigslist because that's where you got things. <laughs> um, Back in 2015, that's what you did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, poached my CEO from Caviar. Um, who was one of the, uh, he was leading the operations there uh, at the time being, and he helped build out my bike fleet. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think what I learned from that experience was, I call it my starter startup. Um, and I think everyone should have a starter startup where they, they make the mistakes and they learn quickly. Um, I did raise a bit of money for it, but um, I think some of my biggest things that I took away from it was, well, one, I went from an extreme introvert to learning how to pitch and how to network. Um, the number of times I pitched that company made, I realized like if I, if my company was going to survive, I had to learn how to be a good public speaker and speak on stages and network and put myself forward. So that was really huge. Um, and then it was through that when I was fundraising in Silicon Valley for the first time that I, um, you know, encountered the blatant and sexist, uh, subtle sexism that comes with trying to navigate the valley. And one of my first investor meetings, you know, the investor walks right over to my 35 year old white male COO, shook his hand, brushed me off as the assistant, and I'm the CEO. And 
that's when I realized for a lot of women, it's not about some of these big egregious stories we hear in the news. It's the small paper cuts mm-hmm. of getting overlooked and undervalued and assumed as inferior just because of who you are. And we can't talk about it because then we're labeled as dr- dramatic or crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I realized I didn't have was a other women or a community of other women who I could empathize with, who I could share openly. And this was all pre me to movement. Um, there really wasn't that much awareness at all about the funding gap. Um, yeah. So, so these communities didn't really exist. And so she works was essentially born, um, as a passion project. And, um, because of the, again, focus, the consistency, um, it spread through word of mouth, um, and grew into over the years, a community of over 20,000 female entrepreneurs, um, focused on closing the funding gap through collaborating and not competing. And that meant, um, bringing in the right sorts of investors who would, um, communicate on a level where it was like, you're playing by our rules. When you enter our space here, it's about educating. It's about facilitating relationships. We never did any straight up pitch competitions. We never did straight up. Like it basically broke the, the interaction, like standard of typical VC power dynamic into a collaborative process. And it was through that um, over time that we helped women raise over $50 million in funding through our events, through our summits, through our community conventions. Um, and, you know, again, wasn't meant to be a company, but when I realized how, uh, how big and important it was to focus on this and how passionate I was about this, uh, purpose that, uh, Foos, my first company, I gave it over to my CEO and then he continued with it for a bit. And then I decided to go full-time into SheWorks. And, um, you know, it was through building that, that I realized that I had found my passion and my purpose. And how'd you go about building that? You talked about some of the numbers of the size of the community, yeah. uh, how much funding a lot of people raise through SheWorks, like, like, Building a community is hard. Everyone, I mean, it's kind of like in vogue now where it's like, you need community as part of what you do, regardless if it's DevOps, you need community. So uh, how did you go about, you know, starting to build it? Like, cause uh, word of mouth can only take you so far. So like, wh- like, what did you do? Yeah. I mean, I think if I try and break down from the very beginning, um, the first thing is like, we very clearly defined our values as well as our value add to the community. So um a lot of people, I think, start by building community, thinking about what they need. They're like, like as you said, like, we need a community in order to grow our product. Um, and it's more so asking the right question, like, what is it that this group of people needs? What value can I offer to them um, that's unique? That uh, And that could be as simple as a safe space to ask questions. Um, and that's really what she works started out as. And, and I think it's, it's very hard to find safe spaces where you feel legitimate and enough and that you truly have a voice and that voice will be heard. So, um, the values that we created ambition, action, altruism, um, helped people self-select in they're like, am I, would I define as someone who's ambitious? 
um, would I define myself as someone who like what altruism mean? Like, do I, I want to give first, you know, I want to see what value I can add to this community, but then we followed up each of those values with like specific actions and rituals. Um, and I think every community grows through rituals and as we trained our directors, so we, as it grew, we had directors reaching out from women from different cities. And so we were like, okay, great. So we see this demand. Um, we see that women are asking for it in different cities around the world. What does it look like to have a SheWorks director in Singapore, in Tel Aviv, in LA, in SF? And those were some of the cities we were in. And so then it was like, let's create a, a manual, like a training manual to train these directors on how to grow their community, how to host these events. So it has the same look and feel um, so that a, a woman in New York would go to a SheWorks event in Singapore and feel like, oh yeah, this is a SheWorks event. Um, what's the caliber of speaker that we would bring in? So all of these little things um, where you can essentially train other people other directors to create their own sub communities within their cities and then have a central hub where we're promoting, you know, the wins from each city in the email list. We're promoting featured founders, featured asks. Um, so I think it's having a central place where things are organized and data is organized and a way to do things as well as making sure that things are consistent as you grow in different nodes of the community. Now, this company as you talked about, hit some great milestones and eventually was acquired. So what, what, how did you get to that point? I always love the acquisition story. And then what are you up to now? Yeah. So the acquisition story was really exciting and also pretty organic. You know, I met um, Ken a few years earlier and he had talked to me about what Republic was doing and his vision for bringing profit to the people and um, this retail revolution as people should be able to choose the companies they invest in um, and the leaders that they want to see in power running companies. Um, and of course, you know, I was trying to solve this gap of how do we get more female founders funded? And when we started talking more and more about our visions of anybody should be able to invest, anybody should be able to build a company regardless of gender or race or class. And women and women of color, of course, are disproportionately um, affected by the bias in, in the Valley, in venture capital, where they're not getting funding. And then you see in equity crowdfunding, women are receiving um, you know, 30% more on average, 30% more on average women are able to successfully fundraise their first million dollars um, through platforms where they can leverage their communities. Um, and so I think there was a clear, um, there was a clear value add on both ends where I got to a point where SheWorks was growing at this pace. And I thought, well, this isn't something that I, I necessarily want to go down the venture capital route again. Um, but I see how this platform could benefit, could be a great, you know, parent company for SheWorks to help so many of these women think about new ways of fundraising for their companies. Um, and then I think on his end, on Republic's end, it was, well, we had we had built what so many people want, right? A loyal community of people who will listen to you and trust you if you share what it is that you're doing. So um, it like after a number of talks, it became a no brainer. And then we figured out the right terms that worked for both sides. And then the 
the right after the acquisition, we were able to launch the SheWorks equity crowdfunding um, campaign where we uh, selected a number of female founders and helped them raise directly on Republic um, and successfully do so. So uh, Republic, talk about the company, what Republic does, and you are now global head of brand and communications. So uh, talk about your role as well. Yeah. So um, I started pretty recently, came back full time after. um, So after the acquisition, I started my own uh, executive and career coaching platform um, to help female leaders. So I work with women on everything from personal confidence to financial confidence to translating that and own their worth in their careers. Um, And then, uh, so I still work with a number of really incredible women as clients. And then going in full time at Republic, um, I think we've reached a a new milestone having just raised our $36 million Series A. um, And with this new stage of growth, as we're adding in more um, verticals, um, more asset classes that people can invest in, the um, one of the things they realized is that they needed a consistent voice, a consistent brand message. And I think as startups go into hyper growth, one of the big things is how do you make sure everyone's communicating about the company in a way that is that feels consistent, that feels empowering. Um, and so my job is really to my goal is to turn Republic into an iconic household brand name that is resonant across all genders, races, and classes that allows people to feel when they see this brand, when they hear from the brand, that um, that their voice is being heard, that their dollar matters, that they have the opportunity to invest in the future they believe in and invest in the leaders that are reflective of the values that they believe in. Well, one of the things that I discovered about you was this whole part of your passion for investing and sharing lessons learned that you've had in the past, um, you know, whether if it was from your experience selling SheWorks or uh, understanding having your money work for you, right? So if you're investing, your money is hopefully working for you and you're gaining upon making smart decisions. So like how did you start to get involved in that narrative? And there was this thing that I saw out there of the the three biggest lies people believe about money versus time. So uh, I I think this is an important piece of of where you're advocating as well. Yeah. So going back to my background as a uh, daughter of immigrants, um, I think if you don't come from wealth and a lot of us don't come from wealth, uh, I mean, everyone has what I call a false financial story. Um, that they that they build up from childhood, which is their parents' views on money affects the way that you view money. So oftentimes, if you're coming from um, not very wealthy background, you learn to save money. You start, you learn to fear losing money, and um, the result of that is you one learn to undervalue your time because you're like, oh, I just need to work harder to make more money. And then I have to save this money because I'm afraid if I, if something goes wrong, like I'm not going to have the money. And so one thing I learned is that um, if you are afraid of losing money, you don't own the money, the money owns you. And that goes with any sort of thing that you're afraid of. If you're afraid of what other people think, their opinions own you, you don't own yourself. Um, But I had to come to terms with 
what I call my false financial story, which was that I believe that in order to make more money, I had to spend more time. And that's how most people see it. Um, and so I was killing myself. You know, I, I had, I think part of the, the training I had as a gymnast which was like, work harder, spend more time in the gym, do more reps, and then you'll be better. And as an entrepreneur, it was like, spend more hours in front of the computer, sleep less, you know, hustle harder. It's the whole, the whole, you know, hustle bro culture. And I think I got to a point where I was like, there's gotta be a better way. <laughs> like I see all these people making so much more money. Um, and especially like I see ease in the way a lot of men in business are making money and throwing deals around and just like taking risks. And I was like, how do I, how do, how do I become that? How do I just like feel more light and more free and abundant? Um, and so confronting some of those limiting beliefs around my own worth, um, my own, like, why is it that I'm afraid to ask for more? Why is it that I'm afraid to lose money? Why is it that I'm afraid to take risk? Like there's so much fear when I watch the market go down or when I, when I, yeah, when I see money like being lost. Um, and so a lot of that is like deep therapy, <laughs> you know, it's like deep self-questioning and awareness. Um, but when I was finally ever finally able to overcome that for myself, I realized that the answer to the question of like, how do you make more money with less time is investing. You know, it's it's investing in whatever that is, whether that's investing in different asset classes, um, or it's investing in delegating to people, you know, having other people do what you shouldn't be spending your time doing. Um, investing in in things that can create leverage. And so, you know, I started with um even even just like dabbling in Robin Hood, right? Like, okay, what am I what stocks am I gonna invest in? So just like a little bit so I can learn that feeling of watching the stock price go down and like be fine. And then um, I started dabbling a little bit in crypto, same thing, very volatile market. And so it was like, okay, I can't stay sane and watch the markets go up and down all day. Like I have better things to do. So then I learned, okay, I like to hold. And I think that's a smart decision overall for most of us. You just invest in, do your research, invest in things that you really like, and just hold it. And that's how your money is going to grow. Same thing with angel investing. I started putting little checks in and um, knowing that I'm not going to see that money for five, 10 years, if at all. Um, but a lot of it was just, okay, if I'm going to invest, I need to invest in things that with my values that I truly believe in. So that means I'm investing in female founders. I'm investing in companies created by women for women. Um, I'm investing in women's health a lot of times because I think the the female body has been researched as a as a small male body for <laughs> the majority of solutions and that needs to change. Um, I'm investing in the creator economy because I believe that creators should have that creative freedom and bring more of that artistic beauty into the world. Um, and then now more and more I'm investing in crypto because I believe that um, our current economic system is controlled by a small homogenous group of people. And with the values of blockchain, which are transparency, community, and connection, there's a real opportunity for those who have traditionally been left out of the system to create a system that actually works for us. 
and you've touched upon these already, but there was a, uh, there's a, a segment that you have on your YouTube channel that talks about three pieces of advice for being a confident investor. So don't follow the hype, invest in things you understand, invest in the future that you want to see, which is exactly what you just said. And I, I couldn't agree more. Like I, there's certain things that I invest in that it's usually tech because that's what I know. And um, oh, there was a famous Fidelity mutual fund manager that I forget his name off the top of my head right now, but he said that invest in things that you know, right? Don't just like, I would never invest into a biotech company because I just wouldn't understand it. Um, and the way that the playing field has been leveled down as far as uh, democratizing the stock market with Robinhood and public, that you can invest a dollar into some of these companies with a slice of a share. Um, or if you do have some resources to become an angel investor, AngelList makes that deal flow happen where before you'd have to build a network and find the deal flow, right? It's just, it's amazing what's happened now and what you can do uh, and take that risk and hopefully follow your passion and, and create that future that you want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously all this comes with risks, right? So there was yes. a piece that you talked about with investing in uh, crypto that you actually didn't work out, right? It was it Litecoin. Oh yeah. Yeah. I put a bunch of money in Litecoin. I followed the hype <laughs> and it still hasn't come. I mean, it still hasn't come back. I've transferred it over to Bitcoin because I was like, you know what? It's, I'm not holding out hope for this. <laughs> so there are risks. I mean, obviously every yeah. investment's not going to work out and you have to be prepared to take that risk, but hopefully the reward of making some smart bets will outweigh the, um, you know, the, the you know, the failures. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, it's just so much different now as far as what you can do uh, in all these different asset classes now. And crypto is definitely an area that I obviously am learning a ton about. I haven't done it yet. You know, I haven't invested in any form yet because, um, I, you know, other than Bitcoin, I think a lot of the other forms are definitely like things that are uh, you know, growing based on hype. Um, but it's all interesting in how that is going to develop. Now, you have a podcast that's going to uh, talk about investing and crypto. So, so mm-hmm. talk about that. Yeah. So I'm excited about this new project. I just launched it. It's called coin is my boyfriend and it is my journey diving into the crazy world of cryptocurrency infiltrating the crypto bros and helping women take control of their money their relationships um and their careers so they can make bank and smash the patriarchy (laughs) (laughs) um but really it's I, the whole goal of it is to help make money and investing fun and profitable uh, for women through talking topics that we naturally talk about when we are social. Um, you know, it's a lot of women talk about relationships, uh, a lot relationships and emotions and like what's going on with our lives in addition to business and career. Um, and you know, that's, that's a bit of a generalization, but it's like, I I found in, in business when I'm working with a lot of men, it's like business deals, growth, you know, like we're talking a lot about this and like, what's the score and women were like, okay, here's, here's what's going on with our lives. Like, what kind of advice do you have? Like, can you support me? Um, oh, by the way, like this is happening, um, which is a lot more holistic of a conversation. And that's what I want the podcast to be, which is you know, crypto is really complicated. It's really intimidating, but like we'll, we'll go on this journey together, safe space, no dumb questions. I'm also relatively new 
space. And I think that's another thing that, um, you know, being at this point in my career where I can say like, I'm also new, like I'm not pretending to be an expert here, but we're going to learn together. Um, I'm going to be your guide. Um, I'm going to make mistakes too, but you know, life is messy. Relationships are messy. Investing is messy. Like there's some rewards everywhere. And like all of that is okay. So, um, yeah, breaking down Bitcoin, breaking down money, breaking down relationships and life and just nothing is taboo. That's awesome. And you have, you're writing a book. Yes, I'm writing a book. Um, I got a book deal from Harper Collins, a dream come true for me as a literature major from Yale. And uh, again, another one of those like over decade long dreams that has finally come to fruition because I couldn't graduate from college and be a broke writer. You know, that was certainly <laughs> unacceptable. Um, but I've, I think I'm, I'm finding that you can, you can make a livelihood, you can make money if you express yourself authentically and create, whether that's in writing or that's in podcasting, you know, whatever content you want to put out there. And so this book um, is a culmination of all the things I've learned over the last, I mean, decade, call it my life, um, just being an unapologetic woman in business um, to help and learn how to lean into their authentic selves, um, maintain their femininity, you know, maintain their voices. Um, it's called the bad bitch business Bible. We've got 10 commandments and what a, a bad bitch shall do. You know, we don't say, we don't limit you. We don't say shall not. Um, it's like, yeah, we create space for that. And, um, I just say that my definition of what a bad bitch is, is a woman who unapologetically owns who she is what she wants and she knows she's going to get it. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's how I try to live my life. Um, really embracing who I am now. And that allows me to put up boundaries um, and to own strength. I know what I want in all areas of my life. And I'm constantly questioning if what I think I want is really what I want, or if it's what society has told me I should want. Um, so I've distilled that out a lot. Um, and finally knows she's going to get it. And that is the, the unwavering faith in yourself that if you put your best self out there, if you commit that the world, the universe is going to transpire to help you get what you want. Um, and it's always reminding myself that I'm my number one cheerleader. I need to be my best friend first, because if I don't believe in myself, if I don't believe I'm going to get it, no one else will. Now you, you do, your day is full. Like you, like you just walk through all the different things that you have going on in terms of, you know, heading up uh, brand and communications at Republic book deal, podcast, your speaker, mentor. There's so much investor I can go on and on. So, so how, like, how do you go about building your brand, right? Your own personal brand? Like what advice would you give to others on, on how to, you know, kind of build that up? Yeah. So it's a great question because I get this question a lot from people. Um, it When I had said that definition of a bad bitch, you know, the first is owns who you are. And a personal brand is a reflection of who you are. And it is a distillation of the most, like the, the most prominent parts of yourself you want to highlight. Um, and there's a combination of, 
there's always a combination of features that you can highlight, but there's a limit to the number of things that you should be highlighting. Cause you can't say, I like dogs and I like travel and I like crypto and I like shiny light shows and I like technology, technology. It's like, people can only remember so much. And so I have found my niche in women investing. And now I'm even niching down on it in terms of like crypto and angel investing. Um, because there's a lot of women who also talk about index fund investing. Um, they talk about budgeting and saving. And, you know, I think there's a lot of fear when people say like, well, how do I, I'm, I'm a multidimensional person. How could I flatten myself into just a personal brand? You can't fit me in a box. Um, and so there's a point you're like, okay, I know that I can't be put in a box, but I am going to, I'm going to find a zone where I can be an expert in that I'm excited to talk about every day. Um, I can create a lot of content around and, you know, once you figure out who you are and the strengths you want to highlight and the niche you want to tackle, um, and the people you want to bring value to, because that's the whole point of building a personal brand. It's like, it's not so you can look really good. It's so that you can serve people and the people who want to find value from you can find you. Um, because they're like, oh, she's like me. She's got something to teach me. And, um, once you have that, then I think testing out if, putting out content about your topic feels good, feels fun, feels light. Because sometimes people will choose niches for their personal brand because they think it's a hot niche and it will make them money. And that is not the way to create a brand because you're going to get tired of that content. Um, so, so you got to choose the one you love. And there's always, there's always going to be people who find that niche interesting if it's specific enough, but not like, I mean, also you can't, you can't even get too specific. I think, um, if you have the problem, someone else is the problem, but that's kind of my, my, my thoughts on personal branding, like one oh one, um, and know who you are, test things out, choose a niche and be consistent with content. Um, and then, and just in terms of your question, like juggling everything, um, it's weird because I don't see myself as juggling things. Um, I just see myself as, okay, now I do this project and now I do this project and now I do this project. And so it's, it's kind of like, how do you, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a mother, but it's like, how do you deal with having a couple or a few kids? You're like, now I spend time with this kid. Now I spend time with this kid. And now I spend time with this kid. And sometimes we spend time together because they all kind of fit in my family. Um, and that's, that's how I feel about all the different brands I'm creating. It's like, I've got this brand baby and this brand baby and this brand baby. And then like, they all are a ref reflection of the Lisa Carmen Wang brand because I love them all in different ways. Oh, that's a great way to put it too. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Like a lot of the things that I do with venture fizz, they all play off of each other. You know, it's, it is different things. It's different pieces of content, but they all come together as a united family. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no pressure. I think to it, like, I think it always goes back to this feeling like you're being put in a box. If you commit to, if you're like, if I commit to this podcast, like even this Bitcoin is my boyfriend podcast, am I only allowed to talk about Bitcoin for the rest of my life? <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, no, that's, oh. you know, your personal brand evolves and you can, 
talk about different things. You can make it what you want to be. And I, the moment I gave myself permission to do that, where I said, like I've created five podcasts over my time. And I used to feel shame about the fact that I created five different brands, five different podcasts at different times in my life. And I realized, no, I'm just, I'm like a musical artist who drops albums, except I drop podcasts that reflect (laughs) different phases of my life because you can, yeah, there's different topics that are interesting to me. No musical artist burns their past album because they're like, oh, I hate that now. It's like that reflected a part of your life. So. So true. All right. So what would be a good uh, podcast or book recommendations that you would share with people these days? Yeah. Um, So a book that I always recommend is Psycho Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. And um, this was a book. So Maxwell Maltz was the pioneer in the study of self-image, how people see themselves. And he was a plastic surgeon initially, and he realized that when he operated on people, everyone came in because they felt they had a defect of some sort. Mm-hmm. And he would fix them up to what they wanted, but two types of people would leave his office. There was one type of person who, after their operation, came out with a new personality. They're like, I'm beautiful now. And like, now I can engage with the world. And they put out a different energy. And then there was a second type of person who still walked out feeling ugly or deformed and had that sort of like victim energy of like, I'm still like, people still don't, they still think I'm ugly and whatever narratives we tell ourselves. And he's like, you realize it's not about what you look like this external thing. I can fix, fix you quote unquote, but it has to, your self-image is how you see yourself. Now, how do you then reprogram your mind to see yourself in a different light and really change your own narrative? And so that was a really foundational book for me that it's very fascinating, but it's also quite actionable in terms of just shifting your own uh, internal dialogue. You're very busy. We talked about what you juggle. And I think a lot of this is just, you know, things that you enjoy doing regardless, uh, you know, passion projects, but outside of this, you know, more business oriented type of things that we've been talking about, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Um, yeah, fun. I mean, I like one thing I'm doing regularly, I bike about an hour or so a day outside, um, in New York, I do it in Central Park. Um, when I'm in Miami, I do it on the boardwalk. Um, and I just get a bike. And I listen to my pop remix music, like high RPM music um, to get me in like a good energy state. And then um, I just bike and I meditate, I get in the flow. um, And I think, but um, yeah, like what's interesting for me is like, I do all these things, but I've now like, I have my weekends to myself. Like I try not to work weekends even. Um, And a lot of it is just creating and thinking like, I've embraced the fact that I'm a, a writer and an artist and like, I enjoy creating things. And I started dabbling in poetry for like a little bit, um, found out I could write poems. So that's cool. <laughs> well, Lisa, thanks so much for taking us through your journey from, uh, you know, the early years to the accomplishments as a gymnast, to being a great entrepreneur and all the work you're doing to educate, uh, and empower women. So it's, it's really remarkable. So thank you for sharing all those stories. It's great to be here. 
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.